0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Total Wine & More. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21.
1: You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. Hey, Shortwavers. Regina Barber here with reporter extraordinaire Anil Oza. Hi, Gina. Hey, Anil.
2: Okay, so I want you to close your eyes. Okay. And picture like an earliest 20th century lab for me.
1: Okay. Very sterile room. Lots of microscopes, sinks, tiled floors, maybe lots of dudes in lab coats.
2: Yep. But you're missing the most important people in that room. The rats.
1: <laughs> Rat test subjects. I am missing them. You're right.
2: <laughs> yeah. And someone who's really interested in those test subjects is Sonia Shaw. She's a science journalist that I spoke to recently, and she's been looking into how using mice in research has changed over time. And she says that by the mid-20th century, some scientists were trying to figure out how to standardize the animals that they use in research.
0: You know, we started having new therapeutics that needed to be tested. You know, you test the same dose of insulin on, you know, a group of guinea pigs. Well, some guinea pigs are going to react in one way, and some guinea pigs react in a totally different way. And it's because there's individual variation.
2: Sonia's is really interested in the relationship between animals and humans. And she's been looking into it recently for this big story she wrote for The New Yorker. And lab rats are a big deal. They're sort of synonymous with research. Here in the U.S., we use close to 100 million of them a year for research.
1: That's a shockingly high number. Like, 100 million?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's a huge number. But the problem is that increasingly, researchers, especially those that work on drugs, are becoming concerned that lab rats aren't actually a good proxy for human research.
1: Do researchers have any idea about why that is? Like, why rats may not actually be a very good proxy for human research?
2: Yeah, in Sonia's reporting, she found that scientists from around a century ago, frustrated with the variability in their different results, tried to not just standardize the animals that they were using, but standardize within a given type of animal too.
0: By controlling the germs and by controlling the genes, we could somehow make this animal that was Deprived of all individuality was basically a, a unit, a thing, a commodity, a widget. <laughs> they could be standardized one after the other. They would always respond the same way, just like, you know, if you press on a lever and the same thing always happens.
2: There was a scientific race to sort of sterilize everything that we were using in the rat or a mouse to control everything inside of them, their genes, the type of food they eat, their microbiomes. But today, some researchers are trying to reverse that by letting their lab animals live a semi-natural environment. We humans aren't all the same. And so there's been times when drugs move from mice to humans, and we sort of find these side effects that we weren't seeing in these mice that are carbon copies of each other. And so in recent years, the question has emerged. If these uniform model organisms aren't working, what makes a better model organism? Recent technological developments have meant that researchers can have a bigger imagination of what animals they study and how. Here's what biologist Alejandro Sanchez Alvarado told me.
3: New technology, um, as it has uh, grown in the past 20 years, uh, one of the byproducts is that it has made biology that was inaccessible, really, really accessible, and vulnerable to interrogation. This is a new phenomenon in the history of biology. I believe that the opportunities for us to understand biology much fuller, much more deeply, has been kicked open.
1: So today on the show, the future of lab rats.
3: And how
2: scientists are reimagining the rest of the lab animal world.
1: I'm Regina Barber.
2: And I'm Anil Oza.
1: And you're listening to Shortwave, the science podcast from NPR.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor, American Express Business. The Enhanced Amex Business Gold Card is packed with benefits, like four times points that adapt to your top two eligible spending categories every month on up to $150,000 in purchases per year and up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. The Amex Business Gold Card, now smarter and more flexible. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com businessgoldcard. This message is brought to you by Apple Pay. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the wallet app and you're good to go. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics, with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. So Gina, Mm -hmm. what do you think makes a good model organism?
1: I actually don't know. I'm guessing it has to do with, like, a short life, so you get, like, a lot of data with a lot of trials.
2: Yeah, forever we've chosen our animals based on them being small and able to reproduce quickly. But more recently, researchers are looking for drama
1: queens. (laughs) Drama queens? Like, what what does that even mean?
2: Alejandro told me that you should sort of start with whatever your research question is, what you want to study, what questions that you have, and then you should find an animal that does that, but to the extreme.
3: In other words, do I really need to reinvent the wheel? If the biological attributes that you want to study are not, um, you know, saliently manifested in already available species, but there's another animal out there that actually does and exaggerates what you really want to study, that is the reason to go after that individual uh, species and try to bring it to the lab and extract its uh, secrets as best as you can. Extract its secrets.
2: I know. I love it. It's so dramatic. (laughs) This all lets you see what you're trying to study really, really clearly. And it lets you see whatever mechanism is underpinning your research question. Like fruit flies, they have a ton of genes that we can very easily compare to our own, but they reproduce really quickly too.
1: Okay, so is this why so many people study rats and, and mice? Because they have these really exaggerated effects?
2: Yeah, I would call rats drama, queens, <laughs> But this exaggerated effect is not really in relation to research
3: questions that we have. The animals that were selected for research today Uh, They were selected for entirely practical reasons. It's not that they occupy a very specific area in the uh, evolution of life that would allow us to reveal, you know, unfathomable secrets. No, they were selected because they really exaggerated the biological attribute. So
2: back in the early 20th century, when we were sort of choosing these animals for research, our biggest questions were about genetics and inheritance, and especially when we couldn't do fancy things like analyzing genomes or using CRISPR, small animals that you can keep in a small space and reproduce really, really quickly were really great. And that's why rats and fruit flies were great early model organisms.
1: Okay. So if Alejandro is pretty clear about like the realities about common model organisms, for better or worse, how has this changed what he uses as a model organism?
2: Yeah. So it's changed what he studies. And he studies a few different animals, but they have one really, really cool property to them: Repairing themselves. And he's really practical about his reasons for studying these kind of weird animals. Take the snail.
3: They have a camera type eye, very similar to yours and mine, uh, with a cornea, a lens, and a retina. And as you know, if you poke your eye, which your mom probably warned you about, that's not going to repair very well. But in snails, if you uh, amputate the eyes, uh, they'll actually grow back as if nothing had happened.
2: I was so, so excited to talk to him about his model organisms because he was telling me that it's really rare to find another lab that studies snails. But I actually used to study snails, and I love them. (laughs) I think they're so cute. I love watching them eat lettuce. They're
1: so tasty.
2: No, I wouldn't eat them. I love them too much. but. It was a nice switch up from fly brains, which is what a lot of people use in neuroscience. But anyway, in terms of science, they have a really simple nervous system with these important neurons that you could easily isolate and track from that are pretty close to what we have.
1: Okay, so if that's the case, should we be replacing all lab rats with fish and snails, or are there other animals we definitely should be considering too?
2: Not entirely. One of the barriers to using these funky model organisms is the technology, like I mentioned before. There's this whole industry around rats and mice and selling these sort of genetic knockouts for mice where we know we take out one gene so we can study them in these mice. But there's also tools and other things that people use to study mice that we have really down-packed. Okay. This is something that I talked to neuroscientist Kelly Duncan at Vassar College about. Right now, she studies finches. But... There was a lot of other animals that she used along the way. Like, she started out with mosquitoes, she's worked with Norwegian rats, Japanese quail, chickens, and even an ostrich brain. Overachiever. Aren't we all though? Here's where she finally ended
0: up. When I first applied for grad school, I initially was really scared of birds. (laughs) Not scared, but I had like a fear of like the movie, The Birds, and I thought like birds were gonna be pecking out my eyes in the lab. I mean, I'm
1: terrified of, like, seagulls at the beach pooping on me, so I I understand her fear. Um, But what made her land on this type of bird?
2: Yeah, she's looking at them as this bigger project into traumatic brain injuries and how the hormone estrogen helps the brain heal. Because these finches have a really supercharged estrogen response compared to what we have, and it makes it really, really easy for her to see it in these birds.
0: So I get to see that extreme reaction to this estrogen response, and then say like, okay, if this is what the max reaction is, what would it look like when it's a little slower? Like in humans? Exactly. And that's what we actually found out, that we see the same reaction, but the time and the scale is so much greater in the birds that it's just such a better model for asking the same question. And then we can go back and say, okay, we found this here. Are we seeing the same factors in humans, right? And so that's kind of the question that we ask is, okay, if that's what they do, I wonder if this is conserved among many different kind of vertebrates. And how does estrogen fit
1: into all of this? Like what does a supercharged estrogen response in the brain look like?
2: Yeah, so estrogen does two things. First, when estrogen is released, it helps protect the brain. Second, it kicks off this feedback loop that turns off inflammation in the brain.
0: And then so that same response that turned it on is actually being turned off by that estrogen. So you don't end up with this massive neuroinflammatory response and things like edema and swelling. Wow. Okay. But isn't it harder to use birds?
2: Oh, absolutely. On top of teaching all of her new students how to become really pro-bird catchers, she and Alejandro said that there's some improvising that goes on because less people are using their model organisms.
1: So what's the next step in all this? Is everyone just trying to promote their own, like, ideal model organism?
2: So I'm definitely team tail. <laughs> However, Kelly's told me that what she wants researchers to be is more intentional about their rodent research and sort of just defaulting to it.
0: The problem is we get so kind of pigeonholed in this idea that everything has to be this mice-rodent model that we forget that, like, oh, yeah, there's this whole systems approach and there could be these natural variations that could really help us target what animals are best for answering those questions. There's something to be said for, you know, if you're studying the uh, spinal cord, what is so unique about a lizard who can basically break off a part of their spinal cord and regenerate it? Like, that's a lot of power.
2: And when I asked Alejandro the same question, he expanded this point about pigeonholing ourselves into a really interesting way. He pointed out most, or many, researchers are really only focusing on seven traditional model organisms.
3: Are seven species enough to tell us everything we need to know? About what's possible in biology. That's seven species versus an estimated 8 million species of animals out there. It is not a statistically significant representative number of the number of um, diversity solutions and biological activities that are already happening in the natural world.
1: Okay, seven compared to 8 million is really drastic. Is there any animal he would like labs to start working with now?
2: Yeah, so when I asked him what I could expect in 20 years, if I could walk into a research building and see just like a whole zoo of animals, (laughs) he
3: told me that his ideal research ecosystem looks like this. You have no impediments to study the biology you need to study because the biology was inaccessible in some exotic organism. We may be able to discover entirely new principles in biology that will help us understand much better how, you know, we look the way we look. Why our organs are proportioned the way they are? Lots of questions that probably um, can be answered by studying a much broader uh, collection of organisms that already exist on the planet.
1: Wow, Anil, I've learned so much. Um, thank you so much for bringing this story to us. Thanks, Gina. This episode was produced by Liz Metzger and Margaret Serino, edited by our managing producer, Rebecca Ramirez, and fact-checked by Britt Hansen. The audio engineer was Carly Strange.
2: Beth Donovan is our Senior Director, and Anya Grundman is our Senior Vice President of Programming.
1: I'm Regina Barber.
2: And I'm Anil Oza.
1: Thanks for listening to Shortwave from NPR. See you next time.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, ShipBob. E-commerce logistics making you question why you started your business. Time to outsource fulfillment to the experts over at ShipBob. Get a free quote at shipbob.com. Ship Bob.
4: The past is shrouded in mystery. To understand it, you have to get up close.
0: Something happened to our collective psyche after the atom bomb.
4: On NPR's Throughline, we reopen stories from the past to find clues to the present. Find Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.